Thanks for that, Juliana. Uh, there is a sermon outline, your order of services. You might want to actually take that out. Uh, that will actually help you follow along as we look at uh, this portion of the Bible this morning. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, as we uh, hear your word, we do pray and ask this Lord's Day that your spirit might come and empower my words and that your spirit might come and enable us to respond uh, to the preaching and teaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In your Bibles, uh, we are looking at verse 4 to verse 10. And one of the things to keep in mind is that verse 4, certainly verse 2 to verse 4, is still part of Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. Uh, In fact, verse 2 to verse 4 is actually really, really one long sentence uh, in the original text. Uh, The English uh, Bible you have actually divides it up. But there's three things happening in verse 2 to verse 4. Paul is praying. He's giving thanks, and you notice three things. If you have your Bibles, uh, you might want to open up your Bible so you can have a look with that, at, at, at that with me. Notice he is mentioning them in his prayers. Uh, he's remembering three things. We saw those three things last week. He re, he's remembering their faith, their love, and their hope. And this week, you notice verse 4, he is, he is giving thanks because he knows uh, that they're loved and they're chosen by God. Uh, And so Paul is giving thanks in this verse because he knows God has worked salvation in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians, okay? And because of that, he's filled with thanksgiving. But he's filled with thanksgiving because when when you read verse 5 to verse 10, and we're going to spend two weeks in verse 5 to verse 10 this week and next week, he's filled with thanksgiving for three things. And you'll see there, uh, he gives thanks for their welcome of the gospel, He gives thanks for the change that's taken place in their lives. Uh, They turn from worshipping idols to worshipping the true and living God. And then notice he gives thanks because uh, of how they now live in the present, waiting for Jesus to come. Uh, A gospel-welcoming people. uh, A God-worshipping people. And a Jesus-waiting people. Right. So there are three things there. Uh, Welcome. Uh, there's welcome, worship, and waiting. Uh, It would have been nice to do all three today. We're not doing all three today. Uh, Or listening, loving, and longing. Uh, But we'll look at the uh, other two next week, so that's all right. But this week, what I want to do is to see that a people who are loved and chosen by God are a gospel-welcoming people. Okay, So that's what I want us to realize, that if you are chosen and you are loved by God, you will be a gospel-welcoming welcoming people. You'll be a people who warmly and receptively uh, receive the gospel into your life. That's one of the marks, okay? So in your Bibles, we look at verse 4. Let's dive into our passage, verse 4. Have a look with me at verse 4. Paul gives thanks in the knowledge, notice, that the Thessalonians are saved. They are loved by God. They are his chosen. You notice he uses those two words. He brings those two words together, loved by God, chosen by God. And so verse 4 reads, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, the two are actually connected. They are loved by God, and they are his chosen people, his family, his community. And that's why Paul calls them, verse 4, brothers and sisters, whom God has loved and chosen. Now, the idea of being chosen is that he has picked them out. He has selected them. He has appointed them. He has called them specifically to be his. 
Now, now Paul uses uh, what we call in the Bible the language of election. Uh, he appoints, he elects, he chooses. And I want to say to you that the idea of choosing isn't a uniquely Christian one. Okay? The idea of choosing is not a uniquely Christian one. So before we cry foul and before we sulk and say, and you, we hear it said, you know, and you would have heard it said as well, you know, people, when they hear that God chooses, people often say, God is unfair. Uh, before we actually cry foul, we need to, to consider how people are chosen in general. How people are chosen in culture and society, in every sphere of life. Because the idea of choosing people or appointing people or electing them is not uniquely a Christian thing. Okay? So in your outline, there's a couple of points that I want to make. Uh, think with me for a moment uh, how appointments and elections and Choosing occurs in every sphere of life, in culture and society, from the sporting field, uh, to our schools and universities, to our workplaces, in corporate, even in the political arena. Think of the way universities operate. Uh, You study hard to achieve the marks that's required to qualify for a particular course. And what actually happens is that the university then surveys and chooses those who meet its academic qualifications. Those who are qualified to actually be included in the course they desire. Now, selective schools work exactly the same way. Only those who make the cut are chosen. It's the same in the world of sports. Only those who qualify, who've got a proven track record of success, are chosen to represent the club or the state or the nation. Right? Think of how uh, the Brownlow medal winner is chosen. Only the best and fairest is chosen. Uh, or think of the Pulitzer, the Booker Literary Prize. Only the best authors are chosen. Uh, think of social media. Um, how many of you are influencers? Uh, only the beautiful are chosen to be influencers. Uh, in the workplace, when you interview for a job, only those who have the right experience and personality and fit are chosen to work in that particular field. And so it's not a uniquely Christian thing, is it? In every sphere and arena of life, you are chosen because you have made the grade. You qualify. You have met the standard, uh, the standard of success and strength and beauty and attractiveness. Choice and appointment in the world always operates on the principle of performance and works because only the best, the beautiful, the successful are chosen. Now, you have to admit, isn't it, if you are not chosen, it does hurt because it says you are not good enough, you're not beautiful enough, you're not successful enough. Uh, those of you who have children in primary school or high school, uh, and those of you who will have kids in school one day, one of the most difficult things, one of the things that hurts most is when your child comes back from school and tells you a story how they've been, of, of how they've been excluded. Maybe in the playground or maybe in the classroom. Uh, it hurts when you're not chosen. Uh, And in the world, you always have to be good enough to be chosen. And so let me say this. It's not just in the world, not just in culture and society. Religion operates exactly the same way. Every world religion operates on the principle of works. Works where you are chosen only if you're good enough, moral enough, if you're able to keep the commandments of some standard. Now, a bit of background to this passage, right? Because it's important to understand the background to a passage like this. It, it was no different. Our world is, was no different to the Roman world. 
Because in the Roman world, in the sphere of politics and public life, uh, public servants and politicians were picked based on their family background, their education, whether they went to the right schools, where, whether they came from nobility, uh, whether they were wealthy, whether they were, they were people of influence. And you know, if you think with me for a moment, it's not too different uh, the way it works today as well. Uh, it's the same with military appointments. A general is appointed because they are successful. Uh, they are chosen because they are worthy. And so, in the Roman world, in our secular world today, appointments has, are always made on the principle of performance. Now, this is the reason why verse 4, in your Bibles, have a look with me, is radically different. Because you'll notice how love and appointment are placed side by side. You see there? God's love, God's chosen. Love and being chosen are placed side by side. Because in God's community, nothing less than the love of God is the cause of his appointment. That is incredibly radical. The reason for his election, the motivation of his choice, regardless of whether you are a good or bad person, uh, regardless of positive or negative character, achievements, notice the basis is his love. Christianity is incredibly different. The very opposite to the world and the very opposite to religion when it comes to the way Christians believe God works. To be chosen in God's economy, his choosing, is simply because he loves you. Very different. Regardless of your socioeconomic background, your culture, your education, your past failures, your attractiveness, your, your guilt, your shame. The basis of God's choice has always been his unconditional love. Now, that is actually the overwhelming teaching of the Bible. Uh, and so maybe you're a guest here. Uh, someone has brought you to our church community. And in your mind, you've always thought that the Bible teaches salvation by good works. The, the Bible never teaches that. Uh, and, you know, we want to dispel the great myth that God only chooses those who are good and beautiful enough who've got their lives together. Even in the Old Testament, God never says, if you keep the law, if you're good enough, I will include you. It doesn't work that way. Uh, very quickly, I want to read to you uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 to verse 8, uh, which is one of the clearest statements in the Old Testament about God's choice. Why Israel were his people? The basis of his choosing of Israel, the Old Testament people of God. And so Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 to 8, let me read that for us. Uh, it says, The Lord did not set his affection, his love on you, and he did not choose you because you were more numerous than other people. Not because you were great. For you were, he says, the fewest of all people. You were small. You were insignificant. But it was because the Lord loved you. And kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you, saved you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Bible has never taught that God saves, God accepts, God welcomes if you're good enough or if you kept his commands. The basis of God's choice has always been his unconditional love. Now, I want to pause and take a step back because uh, it's really worth thinking about this, isn't it? Because often the idea that God loves us just simply, we just assume that. Uh, but, you know, pause and think with me for a moment. Do, do you want to be wanted because you're beautiful or because you are simply loved? Uh, do you want to be included because you have something to offer 
or because you are simply loved? Uh, Do you want to be accepted because you have performed or simply because you are loved? Now pause and think about it because I don't know anyone who wants to be loved conditionally. You see, we all want to be loved unconditionally. Which is why the idea that God loving unconditionally, if you really think about it, um, is absurd. Because the world does not operate on the principle of unconditional love. Historically and culturally, the world has never operated on the principle of unconditional love. Can I say this? To be chosen in culture and society is always going to be based on your performance. Your beauty, your attractiveness, your record of success. It's always conditional. To be chosen in God's economy is because you are simply loved. It's unconditional. Now, I have to say, for the vast majority of us, the idea that God loves is not a very radical thing. Okay? That's why it just goes past our heads. We hear God loves us, and it just goes past our heads. In fact, uh, I read an editorial in the papers very, very recently that said, if you believe in God, it's God's job to love you. It's God's job to love you. And I thought, really? Because if you've understood the background of the Roman world, the idea of God loving you is a far-fetched idea. It's an outrageous idea. Now, I don't know if you realize this. If you're not someone who believes in God, right? If you've got friends who don't believe in God, uh, if you speak to most people who do not believe in God, right? maybe that's one of you here, but if you think and you imagine there was a God, the majority of people actually conceive of God or think of God as a God who loves. Even people who, are, who don't believe in God. Their conception of God is that it's normal to think, if I believed in God, that he would be a God of love. And if you think like that, or if you've got friends who think like that who don't believe in God, it's because you've been thoroughly Christianized as someone who's been raised in the West. Secular culture is so Christianized that even people who don't believe in God, when they speak of the God they don't believe in, assume that he must love. Did you ever realize that? It's God's job to love us. He must be loving and good and kind and caring. Or even you notice, you know, when people seek to disprove the, the idea that God exists, notice they point out the problems of the world and they say, well, the assumption they assume is that God must be evil, but he should be loving. Why is that? Can I say to you that the idea that God is love is a very unique Christian belief? You only find it in the Judeo-Christian religion. Why would you think that if there was a God, that he had to be good or kind or selfless or compassionate or loving towards you? Why not fickle and demanding? After all, he is God. And so whether you are religious or not, if you think of God as a God of love, it's because your idea of God has been so Christianized as a secular person That even the God you don't believe in is conceived as a God of love. Now, I want to say this to you because the ancients did not believe or think of God as kind and caring and compassionate. The idea that God is selfless and loving is a uniquely Christian belief, historically and culturally. Because the gods of the ancient world only favored the beautiful, the strong, those who are rich enough to offer them something, those who could prove themselves to the gods. One author puts it like this, no one credited the pagan gods with being love or loving. They were jealous, fickle, capricious, 
and entertain themselves by trifling in human affairs. And so, in the ancient world, people's relationship to the divine or the supernatural or to the gods was not based on the love of a god for them. The primary posture in relating to the gods was to placate the gods, to satisfy the gods so that bad things wouldn't happen to them, to gain the favor of the gods. And even as they did all that, as they seek to placate the gods, there was no assurance that the gods would actually listen to you or answer your prayers because the gods do not love. That's, that's not their posture, right? They make demands and you must satisfy or placate their demands if they're going to answer your prayers. And they may or may not. And so, let me say this. The idea that God loves is a uniquely Christian idea. And so, against the backdrop of, you know, against this backdrop comes a message that says, there is a God who loves you and who has favored you, who has shown you kindness, who cares for you, who calls you to be his, and who demonstrates his love by selflessly giving his son for you. It's an absurd idea in the world of the New Testament. Because at the heart of the Christian message is the message that there is a God who loves you and who has come to die for you, to make you his. The good life you could never live, Jesus lived for you. His performance becomes yours. The judgment for sin that should have been yours, he takes for you. He dies in your place. Unheard of. Why would the gods do that? And so the God of Christianity was radically different as it came to the world of the New Testament. He comes as a loving father who acts in Jesus to save. He calls out a people to himself unconditionally. He shows favor to those who are weak. He extends kindness to those who fail. He loves the unlovable and he loves the enemy. So Christianity is actually radically different from the way culture and society operates, and it is radically different from the way religion operates. It's different. It's different because it grounds God's choice in unconditional love and never on your attractiveness or your morality. Two things I want you to think very carefully about if you're a Christian. Uh, So if you're a Christian, here are two things to think about. Is there in your outlines. Here's number one. If God's love and choice in saving you is based on his unconditional love for you, notice, it should actually make you a humble person. It should make you humble and it should give you assurance. It should. You know, we sing it all the time. You know, I will not boast in anything. Not my gifts. Not my power. Not my wisdom. And then it says, what do we sing? But I will boast in the Father's love, in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Christian people are supposed to be humble and assured people. And, and they're supposed to be humble and assured people because they really have nothing to boast in. Christian people should be people who haven't got fragile egos, who are bruised easily when they criticize. Christian people uh, should be people who aren't crushed when they're rejected because they know they're already loved. Christian people don't have to live their lives trying to prove themselves to others because they know that they are loved unconditionally. You know, in a world that's conditional, a world where your esteem and worth is determined by your attractiveness, where your worth and value is determined by your beauty and your intellect, your success and your strength, in a world that's going to 
accept or reject you based on your appearance, uh, a world that will only include you if you have something to offer, this is good news. Because the gospel says you are always loved and chosen by God because of Jesus, and that should really make you a humble and very assured person. But there's a second thing, right? And I put it down there for you. If God's love and choice in saving you is based on his unconditional love, it should make you predisposed to the weak. It should make you a a man or woman of compassion. Uh, It should make you predisposed to the weak, the excluded, the disheartened, to those who are not going to give you anything or advantage you in any way. Christian people are predisposed towards choosing the weak over the strong, caring for the poor over the rich, walking with the failed over the successful. Why? Because they have understood the nature of God's unconditional love and choice in their own lives. You see, the Bible's teaching on God's election should make you a person of compassion for the weak, love for the needy. Your eyes should be open to those that people exclude. You know, Christianity has always been, historically, predisposed to the weak, uh, to the powerless, the broken, the failed, even the enemy. Uh, That's the reason why, when you get to chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, chapter 4, verse 10, 1 Thessalonians, he says, do this more, keep loving people more and more. And then in chapter 5, he says, this is the object of your love. These, these are the people who are to be the object of your love. In chapter 5, verse 14 to 15, let me read that for us. He says, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure no, no one pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else, the insider and the outsider. The disheartened, the weak, those who require our patience, the people who wrong us, It's loving those who bring nothing into your life. It's loving those who will not give you an advantage or benefit in life. Why are such people called to be the focus of our love? Why are such people to be chosen if we were to exercise love? It's because the nature of God's choice for people has never been grounded in their performance or ability to offer him something in return. And if that is how God has loved you and you've truly understood his choice and his love for you, your heart will be open to, this, to the disheartened, to the weak, to the broken, to those who bring you nothing. But notice what Paul goes on to say. Have a look at verse 5 to verse 6, okay? People who are loved by God and chosen by God will also be a people who warmly welcome the gospel into their lives. Right? By people's response to the gospel, you know whether they've been loved and chosen. Have a look at verse 5 to verse 6. Right? For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that has chosen you. Notice, because the gospel has come to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Right? Notice what verse 5 says. The gospel was proclaimed in the power of the Spirit with deep conviction. The idea of deep conviction is it comes um, in its fullness. It comes in its richness, okay, in the power of the Spirit. And then notice verse 6 says that they welcome the gospel even in their severe suffering with joy, notice, given by the Spirit. How do you know you're loved and chosen by God? You see two things. Uh, firstly, you see the good news of Jesus is proclaimed to you in the power of the Spirit of God. 
And the Spirit then enables you to receive it with joy. The Spirit enables you to welcome the gospel into your life. Uh, and so there's always spirit and, uh, Spirit-empowered proclamation, and then there's Spirit-enabled welcome. Have you ever wondered how God calls someone, how He extends His love? Right? It comes through the, through the word of the gospel. That's how it comes. Right? You want to hear God speak in your life? You want to hear His words of love to you? How do you know He's calling you? Well, it comes in the gospel, in the gospel proclaimed in the power of the Spirit. And so, in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they're in the city of Pisidian Antioch. Uh, and, and there, Acts 13, 48, very significant text, right? It's, it's one of many texts in the Bible. Uh, they come and they proclaim the gospel, the word. They preach the word. And let me read this for you. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, when the Gentiles heard the gospel, they were glad. The word is joy. The root word there is joy. When the Gentiles heard the gospel, they were filled with joy, with gladness of heart. And they honored the word of the Lord. And then it says, and all who were appointed and all who were chosen believed. See there? The gospel comes in the power of the Spirit, proclaimed as an empowered word. And the Spirit of God enables a response. That's how it works, right? Um, In the teaching and preaching of the Word, in the power of the Spirit, God is extending His call to those listening. He is reaching out in love. Now, maybe you've never realized this, right? Because here at Grace Point, every week, I don't know whether you realize this, every week God is extending His call in the gospel preached. He's reaching out in love. In the words of the gospel, we sing. The gospel and the sign of the Lord's Supper, we celebrate. Right? We proclaim, notice the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we do in the Lord's Supper. Uh, we hear the gospel in the, in the very structure of our service. You know, we come to worship on Sunday. You know the structure of our service is proclaiming the gospel and inviting you to come and know the love of the Father. Because the structure of our service, you know, your bulletins, why don't you pull out your bulletins right now? But the very structure of our service is actually a story. It's a drama being played out. And you are the participants in the drama because when you come to worship, you are being invited basically to do what? To be part of the gospel story. And the gospel story is there in the structure of our service. It's a story of love rejected and love restored. Notice, because what's happening in worship is... We are not just speaking to God, but God is speaking to us and we are responding to Him. That's what worship is. God speaks and we listen and we respond, right? And so notice in your structure, there is a call to worship God, our King and Creator, who made us to enjoy Him, right? The world and His gifts to us, we're called to respond to Him in worship. And there's a call to sing His praises because He is worthy, but then when you come into the presence of your creator and king, you look at your life and then you, you recognize that we are fallen, we are broken. And so we recognize uh, even though God loves us, when we come into his presence, we see our sin, which is why we confess our sins. But then God speaks, doesn't he? There is a word of assurance that he forgives us on account of Jesus because he is always gracious and loving. God speaks. Then we have a congregational prayer because we now bring our needs and our response to Him because He is our Father. 
We're then taught God's truth in a catechism, and then we offer our lives and gifts to Him in the offering, right? We then hear Him speak to us in the Bible reading, and we express our desire to live under His Word in the sermon. Then we affirm our faith alongside the church past, present, and future in the Apostles' Creed. And then at the end, We hear God's word of blessing because we are now sent into the world knowing that God has strengthened and blessed us. And we're now sent into the world with his blessing to be his witnesses. You see that? The gospel is being played out even in the structure of our service, which is why we have a particular liturgy. The gospel is being presented even in the structure of our service. And and we are invited basically to respond to the call of the gospel, proclaiming the power of the Spirit. The offer of love is extended to you in worship every Sunday that you come. And those who are loved and chosen will respond. Because notice verse 6. You know you are loved, chosen by God, if there is a Spirit-enabled response to the gospel. God by His Spirit, it says, takes hold of you. God by His Spirit grabs you and enables you so that you now move towards Him. There is a spirit-empowered message proclaimed and a spirit-enabled response in welcoming it with joy. Now, I don't know if you've really grasped this truth. Because if this passage is true, it means that Christian conversion, Christian growth, Christian maturity, or sanctification in the language of the Bible, the ability to respond to the gospel, growth, is a supernatural work. We are enabled by the Spirit to respond, to embrace the gospel, to respond to Jesus and His saving work, to joyfully receive His word. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 to verse 6, right? For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then Paul says, For the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has done what? Has shone in your hearts. To give you the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. God shines his light into the darkness of your heart and mind. He wakes you up. He gives you life. He takes hold of you. And you warmly welcome the Lord Jesus into your life. And you know, we sing it all the time, don't we? In so many of our songs, right? Grace that found you when you were lost. Grace that gave you sight when you were blind. And it's a grace you will always need. Did you hear that? It's a grace that you will always need. Let me draw a few implications for us. Here's number one. If it's true that we need God by His Spirit to empower the word proclaimed and to enable a response to that word, it should really drive us to humility and dependence. It should drive us to great humility and dependence. Whenever we read the Bible with others, whenever we teach the Bible, um, if, you're, if you're a CG leader here, or maybe you're someone who teaches and helps in Sunday school, maybe you're a youth leader, maybe you're discipling someone, or maybe you meet up to read the Bible with someone here, maybe as a parent you read the Bible to your children. Every time you open the Bible to teach or share it, remember that your words, your teaching, your ability cannot change anyone. You cannot change anyone. It takes God by His Spirit empowering your words and enabling a heart response. You're a parent. Listen very carefully, right? Raising children who love Jesus 
actually requires the gracious enabling of the Spirit in your children's lives. One day, if you have children who love the Lord Jesus, who are serving Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, can I say that? Can I say this? It's not because you are a brilliant, wonderful parent. You might be. But if they are followers of Jesus, it's because God by His Spirit has graciously enabled that response to His gospel in their lives. Nothing happens without God by His Spirit doing that. We must learn to be dependent. And we should never fall into despair when there is very little response to the Bible. We must instead learn to be dependent. Now, here's a very simple prayer you could be praying, expressing your humility and dependence. And it's a good prayer to learn to pray. You could be praying, Come, Holy Spirit, speak powerfully through the word that we're going to read and teach. Come, Holy Spirit, enable my community group, my Sunday school kids, my high school students, my family to welcome and receive this word. Because the work of Christian maturity and transformation in the life of the church and your family actually requires not just a spirit-empowered word, but a spirit-enabled response. Only the spirit can reveal the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2. That's number one. Here's number two. If it's true that we need God by His Spirit to empower the Word and, for, and to enable a welcome response of the Word, it should make us prayerful every time we ourselves personally engage with God's Word. Right? It should make us personally prayerful every time we ourselves engage with God's Word. Because personally, you will never grow until the Spirit of God enables you to personally welcome that word in your life. Um, and I think we need to learn and pray for ourselves. You know, for ourselves personally. Come, Holy Spirit, speak powerfully to me as I read the Bible today, as I hear it preach, as I study it tonight in my community groups, as I read it together in my meetup, as I encounter the gospel in Sunday worship. Come, Spirit of God, enable in me a warm response as I read it personally as I hear it on the train, right? As I hear my podcast, my Bible podcast, as I hear it preach, as I study in my community group, enable in my heart a welcome response to your word. You pray those sorts of prayers. You ever pray like that as you come to community group each week to sit under the word or when you come on Sunday to sit under the teaching of the word or when you meet to read the Bible with someone, you pray like that. Come in the power of the spirit so I personally hear it as your word. Come, Spirit of God, and enable in my heart a welcome response to your word. Maybe that's something each of us needs to learn to pray if we are going to experience the transforming work of God in our lives every time we encounter God's word, right? But here's number three. If it's true that we need God's empowering word, proclaim, and we need God's Spirit to enable a response to the Word, it should take the pressure off us. Especially those of you who teach the Bible today. Those of you who teach the Bible, uh, it should give you relief because, listen to this, people's growth, people's maturity, people's transformation is not dependent on you. And so if you're involved in ministry here at Grace Point, you're, you're one of our Bible teachers, you know, remember that. It should give you relief. It doesn't depend on you. Uh, I've passed it for a while here at Grace Point. And in the early days, it really used to frustrate me, right? It used to frustrate me because I realized that people could sit under our ministry for years, but then you look at their lives and there's very little change. Uh, and I realized two things. 
Let me share with you those two things I realized. Firstly, like the parable of Jesus in Matthew 13, I'm always reminded that the wheat and the weeds grow together. You know when you put seeds in the ground and they grow, you can't tell them apart. You can't tell which is the wheat and which is the weed. Which is the plant that you, you set out to grow and which is actually the weed that just grows because it lands in the soil, right? You can't always tell them apart. Matthew 13 reminded me that you can't tell them apart until the day of harvest. And on that day, it will be clear. And guess what? It's not me who does the sorting. It's the Lord. I can't make people respond to the word. I cannot force a tree to bear fruit. But I tell you what I can do. I can plant seeds. I can also water it. I can teach it in the power of the Spirit. But then I realized the second thing. I remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, only God can make it grow. I can plant seeds, I can water it, but only God can make it grow. Christian maturity is a work of God. Repentance and faith is a work of God. Changed lives is a work of God. Yes, his means is the word proclaimed and taught in the power of the Spirit, but that welcome response, the convicted heart, the changed life, that spirit enable. And if you're a Bible teacher in our church, I hope that gives you relief, but I also hope it makes you dependent. Let me say a few words as I bring our time to a close. Those who are loved and chosen by God are marked always by a spirit-enabled welcome of the gospel in their lives, right? A gospel-welcoming people. That's one of the marks. You're a gospel-welcoming person. And And I don't know if you've realized this. You have many opportunities to hear and receive God's call. You have many opportunities to experience God reaching out to you in His love, to hear the gospel being proclaimed to you in the power of the Spirit. When you turn up, um, when you open the Bible personally during the week, when you turn up at community groups, when you listen to a Christian podcast midweek, as some of you do, uh, as you worship on Sundays, as you hear the word preach, as it's shared with you when you meet up with people here at Grace Point. uh, You know, if you are a regular at Grace Point, you are not a person who lacks the word coming to you in fullness and abundance. And you are not a person who lacks the gospel and the word of God coming to you in the power of the Spirit. Here's my question. How is it received? Is it welcome? Is it embraced? Or better still, has it actually gripped you? Has it actually seized you, taken hold of you, and lifted you up off your seats? Has it actually shaken up your life? Has it compelled you? It should. And it can if the Spirit enables it. And maybe, just maybe, if you're not growing, if you're not being transformed, if the Bible comes to you as an empty word, if Sunday worship for you is dull, maybe it's because you need the Spirit's convicting work in your life. One of the most interesting things I hear at Grace Point every so often, I hear it every few years actually. You stay long enough at a place, you hear everything. Or you hear every, every feedback that you can find. But every, every few years, there's always people who say to me, and maybe you won't say it to me now because I'm sharing it. Um, every few years at Grace Point, someone will say to me, I'm no longer growing at Grace Point. No longer growing here, huge. Time to find another church. Okay, that's fine. 
And I really find it interesting because as I reflect on a passage like this, you know, I'm always asking now, how many opportunities have you had to hear the word of the gospel proclaimed in its fullness in the power of the Spirit? In your personal Bible reading, in your community group, in your meetup, in the online sermons and podcasts you listen to during the week, in your worship on Sunday, in the sermons preached, in all the training and equipping offered. You know, if you're here in our church community, it's very unlikely that we're not feeding you. In fact, it's really unlikely if you haven't got a waterfall of God's word flowing into your life. It's very unlikely you're not being flooded by the word of God. It's likely something else, you know, if you're not growing. Sometimes when the soil is hard, the water just doesn't go in. I've got a pot plant in my backyard, and I don't know why I keep watering it. (laughs) Uh, It's not dead. It's sort of semi-alive, but it's not growing, and it's really, really small. It's been small like that for many, many years. And, you know, out of faithfulness, I keep watering it. But, you know, whenever I water it, this is what actually happens. I water the plant. It's really small. And the water will just land on the soil and then drip off the side. And you know why? Because the soil is so compacted and so hard, hardly anything goes in. You know, sometimes we need the Spirit of God to work the soil so that water goes in. And so maybe for some of us, that's what we need the Spirit of God to do in our lives. To till the soil. I'm going to pause, and I'm going to pray a very simple prayer that we should be praying. And as we pray, I'm going to invite you to respond. So I'm going to pause, I'm going to pray this prayer. Join with me as I pray. Come, Holy Spirit, empower your word as we hear it today. And enable in us a welcome of your word in our lives today. I just want to pause and I want to ask that God might speak personally to us. Pause and listen to what the Lord might be wanting to say to you. Maybe he calls you today to walk in humility because you just think you're better than the people around you. Maybe he's wanting to humble you by reminding you that he's love and his choice in saving you has never been grounded in anything you've done or anything you've accomplished, but his unconditional love for you and the Lord Jesus. Maybe he wants to humble you. Maybe the Lord is wanting to give you assurance. Maybe you've experienced the pain of some hurt, some rejection, some criticism. You just don't feel good enough. Can I say to you, maybe the Lord wants to give you assurance. You're never going to find love and acceptance than in the love and the choice of the Father for you. And God wants to give you that assurance, maybe. The world may turn its back on you, but the Father's arms are open wide today, and He says, come. I have been, and I will always love you. Maybe the Lord is opening your eyes to love someone today that you need to love unconditionally. Maybe he's revealed to you someone who needs your encouragement. Someone you need to walk with. Someone you need to love unconditionally. Maybe he's just revealed a person to you. Maybe that's the person you'll reach out to. 
Or maybe the Lord is wanting you to realize that you really need to grow. For a long period of time, your heart is hard as you come to worship. You go through the motions of Bible reading and community group, but it has very little effect in your life. Or maybe people around you don't know it, but your Christian life is stale. Even though the word is pouring into your life like a waterfall on Sundays in community groups through the people around you, God is gracious. Maybe the Lord is driving you to a place of desperation but dependence to seek the Spirit's enabling work today. Maybe your prayer is the soil of my heart is fallow and hard. Come, Holy Spirit, till the soil so that the word will sink deep and saturate my heart. Make that your prayer. Come, Spirit of God, empower your word as we hear it. Come, Holy Spirit, enable in us a welcome of your word today. Amen.